The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. Do you have your copy of Scripture? Go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter 4. And uh, that's where we're going to pick up with where we left off last week. Last week we had Ruth and Naomi concocted a plan to try and help God out a little bit to make things work. And we see that Ruth on her way to the threshing floor, it's like she had this moment where she just said, you know what? I I know this guy. I know Boaz. He's not that kind of person. And so when that moment comes, what happens is there's a reversal. Instead of Boaz actually proposing to Ruth, Ruth ends up proposing to Boaz and asking him, as my redeemer, spread your wing over me, which is a ancient Near East uh, symbol of protection and provision and asking someone to come into your house. And so it's kind of like our engagement here. And so that's where we left it. And she returned home and Naomi said, how did it fare? And of course she told her and showed her all the things that Boaz had given to her. Um, what, what soon to be bride would not want a whole bunch of barley for a wedding present. I mean, that's a great thing. And so she shows her all that he had given to her. And then she says to him, uh, to her, Naomi says to Ruth, you know, he will not let this day go by without settling the matter. And so that brings us into chapter four, where Boaz does indeed move forward with settling that matter. Now, have you ever paid attention to some of the craziest ads that are out there? How many of you stay up late at night sometimes and you're flipping through the channels or you're just watching a show, but for some reason, I guess the craziest people stay up late because that's when you have the craziest ads. And there are always ones like this where it says, save money without changing your lifestyle, right? So in other words, you can just keep doing everything that you want, but all of a sudden money is just going to start showing up in your bank account and in your pocket, but you don't have to change anything. Or how about this one? Stop smoking now with no cravings. Yeah, nothing. You're not going to deal with it at all. I mean, you're just, all of a sudden you're going to read this book right here and you will stop smoking. You don't have to do anything. No nicotine patches, no hypnotism. All you got to, it's just information that you lack. And for $49.95 and, and, and four easy installments of that, which by the way, is there ever an easy installment of money? Okay, that, that's a joke in and of itself. Or how about this one? Lose weight no diet, no exercise. How many of y'all would love to believe that one right there? That you can lose weight, no diet, no exercise. Now, a lot of times we see those things and the reason that we see them is because people actually buy into those things. They believe that you can get something good without any kind of sacrifice. So it's advertisement like this to try to make us believe that we can have whatever we want without sacrificing a thing in our life. Now, here's a law that we know is true. You cannot get something you want without giving up something in return. Do you hear me say that? You cannot get something that you want without giving up something in return. So by definition, a sacrifice means losing something. So if we try to deny this law of sacrifice at the very heart of the things that we hold dear to us, the the lifestyles that we live, the culture that we live in, no wonder we have this soaring credit card debt 
in our culture, right? Because we want what we want, and we want it right now, but we don't want to sacrifice anything. I don't want to have to take away from what I'm paying for over here or what I like to do over here to have this thing that I really want, so I'll just put it on the credit card because I've bought into this system that I should be able to have whatever I want and not have to sacrifice anything. Our whole culture lives on that. Look at our national debt. As of June 2017, the amount of revolving debt in the United States, this is consumer debt, this does not include mortgages or student loans, was $1,022 billion. That's what we as Americans have put on to credit cards. That is nearly 40% of every single American household carrying some form of debt on a credit card. The fantasy that you can have whatever you would like without ever having to pay for it is incredibly seductive, is it not? And that's why so many people in our culture have bought into it. But the reality is that that is only a fantasy. It's not true. There's always a price to pay. If you want to lose weight, you have to give up junk food and you have to eat good food. If you want to get ripped like me, you have to work out regularly. I mean, this doesn't come naturally. If you want the good life, you have to work hard and you have to save your money and you have to cut in this area and cut in that area and you have to put it up and you have to save up to enjoy that great trip to Disney World, right? So you have to be willing to sacrifice something to get something better. In our unfolding story here that we've been looking at between Boaz and Ruth, we've been looking at this for the past couple of months in this incredible book that we find in the Old Testament, perfectly situated here for us to see this, this journey that God, this redemptive journey, if you will, that God has been bringing his people on. So you're coming out of Judges, and this is the time that the book of Ruth is written. It tells us that in the very first verse, that this was during the time of the Judges. We know the time of the Judges was horrible. And if you look at the end of Judges. It is just a rotten time. And yet here's God's redemptive story unfolding in one of the worst times in Israel's history. And it reminds us that this is the family that King David comes from, which sets us up for the books that are to come in our Old Testament. And so again, it reminds us that behind the scenes, no matter how bad things look, God is always working there. And in our story here, we see this character by the name of Boaz. And what we see in him is that he epitomizes this truth of to get something better, you have to be willing to sacrifice. And so he was willing to sacrifice his inheritance. We're going to see that he was willing to sacrifice his reputation in order to redeem Ruth because he saw this greater value in that act than in just an earthly inheritance. So, you know, if you think about it, we seem to have this idea that to sacrifice something, we always end up losing, all right? We believe that to sacrifice means not to come out ahead. And it's entirely this selfless act in which someone does something for someone else and it's completely for the other person's benefit. Now that should be the attitude maybe going into it, but that is rarely how it actually turns out. Think about a soldier who, who jumps onto a grenade to protect his fellow soldiers. And this is a completely selfless act where he loses his life to save his fellow soldiers. But the question is this, is it a completely selfless act? No, because he has this belief 
that to sacrifice his life and to save the life of the others will in fact help to win the battle or win the war that they are in. And he has this perspective that that is an important, valuable thing. Therefore, he is willing to trade something very valuable to him for something that he feels like is even more important than his own life. Do you see that? And so sacrifice isn't always about selflessness. The American Heritage Dictionary defines sacrifice this way. To forfeit something for something else considered to have a greater value. Think about that definition for a moment. To forfeit something for something else that from the perspective of the person who's doing the sacrifice, they consider it to be of a greater value. So sacrifice doesn't mean giving up something for absolutely nothing. It means giving up one thing for something else that's thought to be worth more. So this does not at all take away from the virtue of the sacrifice. Because when we think about the soldier who lays down his life, man, he's chosen to place more value in the lives of his fellow soldiers than in his own life. And, and who could argue that that is honorable and that is admirable? So as we've studied this incredible story of redemption and sacrifice, we find ourselves in Ruth chapter four. And in today's text, what we're gonna see is Boaz is gonna make one of the most ultimate forms of sacrifice in his day and in his culture. He gives up his own rights of inheritance because he believes that there is more value in marrying and redeeming Ruth because that is a system, a provision that God's law has, has put in there within the Mosaic law to provide for widows and for orphans. But as is often the case, we are going to see that instead of his sacrifice costing him something, it ends up that he receives something even greater than an earthly inheritance. He ends up receiving a legacy. With that being in the background of our minds, let's begin to read our text. We'll begin in chapter four, verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So what we see here in chapter four is the focus becomes centered around this character, Boaz, where here we see him taking the initiative all on himself. You know, beforehand, we see all of these other characters and they're all striving or thinking or hoping for something. But here in chapter four, it centers around this one character. And what we see is he takes the initiative every single time. He's the one that goes to the city gate. He's the one that waits for the relative to come along. He's the one that calls together the elders of the city and has them to sit down. So if you pay attention, you're gonna see that all the other characters of this story at this point only begin to respond to whatever Boaz is actually initiating here. So we see that focus center around him. Notice that Boaz never refers to this other person, this other possible redeemer by name. Look at your text there. He just calls him what? Friend. Yes, he calls him friend. Now in Hebrew, this is the phrase peloni almoni. Okay, Poloni Almoni, which you can hear it has that rhyme to it. Now, this is actually in the Hebrew language is an idiomatic wordplay. It's very similar to what we have in English, which is called a, far, a farago. Have you ever heard of a farago? Have you ever heard someone says, quit dilly-dallying? 
Or they say, man, that gave me the hibby-jibbies. Or someone would say something like, you know, that's just a hodgepodge of ideas. Okay, that would be a far ago, okay? It's when we take words that are kind of meaningless words and we put them together and they represent something that is very general, right? So we don't name them specifically. Well, this right here in Hebrew is a way of talking about someone without actually naming the person. Now, this is very significant because the author is using it here very intentionally because he's avoiding identifying this person. Now, here's the question. Does Boaz know this guy's name? Sure he does, because he sat there and waited for this guy to show up. You know, it's not like he just said, I'm going to wait until I see a familiar face. No, he knows the guy's name. The problem here is whenever he calls him friend, the author is trying to set up, draw our attention to the fact that he's going to great lengths not to name this person. This is very significant. Why? From a biblical perspective, names mean something. And to have your name out there, to have an honorable name is a big deal in the ancient Near East. Let me remind you of what it says in Proverbs chapter 22, 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold, right? And that is the motto of the ancient world, to have a good name, a reputable name, an honorable name. That is, in the ancient world, more desired than being wealthy, And so there's no doubt that Boaz knows this man's name because more than likely he had to use this man's name in the transaction that's about to take place. So the fact that the author makes this about Boaz and Mr. So-and-so, and and that's that's exactly what he's doing there. He's saying, Boaz comes in and here's Mr. So-and-so. We're not going to name him. And so we we see this picture there where Boaz is known and this other guy remains unknown. Now, again, let's contextualize this within the Leverite marriage, which is at the background of all of this. In the Leverite marriage, the legal obligation applies only to the immediate brothers of a deceased man. Now, I want to make this clear because it's important for us to understand. When we've talked about Leverite marriage, all it kind of focuses in on is the immediate family. So therefore, when a brother dies, it's the responsibility of that brother or the other brother or another brother, however that line goes. But once there are no more brothers, the legal obligation falls. There is the possibility of redeemers because the land and inheritance has to stay within. What did we say was one of the themes of Ruth? It is the idea of tribes, clans, and family. And so we see all of that there. So if you remember, whenever the Israelites came into the land, God made it very clear in Deuteronomy, do not touch the boundary stones because everything is divided up among tribes and all of that land has to stay within that tribe. So within that tribe, you have these different clans, which just think about that as a larger family. It's when you get together as at your family reunion and you meet those people you've never met in your entire life, that's your clan right? They're not your immediate family. They're not the people you probably see every single Christmas, but they're related to you. And it's this bigger picture. Now your immediate family is probably the people that you spend Christmas with or Thanksgiving. They're the people that you see on a continual basis. You know them, you know things that are happening in their life. So family is where the Leverite marriage is bound to. Beyond that is where we get into the redeemer or the kinsman redeemer. Why? Because God said the land has to stay within that larger tribe. So there is this pecking order going up through the clan to make sure the land stays within that tribe. Are y'all tracking with me so far with this? 
All right, so this is where we are. So Boaz is willing to be a redeemer, even though he doesn't have to do this. Since there's no brothers, this pecking order is being followed. If a man died without either a son or someone to take his property, then he would have to pass it on to someone It is further down that line. And it could be an uncle. It would be on the, the, the paternal uncle, okay? It would be on the father's side there. The property would pass to that nearest relative within the clan. Now, remember when we said that one of the themes of Ruth is this idea of family, clan, tribe, this idea of redeemer, and this idea of being virtuous. Now, again, I want to highlight where we were last week. Last week, It says that Ruth was a worthy woman. That's what Boaz said to her. You are a worthy woman. And the second kindness that you have shown is greater than the first. Now, again, I want to situate this. Now, in our English Bibles, we may not see this because it's in the Hebrew Bible that you find the order that really sets up why that is a significant word. Because in the Hebrew Bible, in other words, the Jews, the way they order their Old Testament, the book that comes right before Ruth is Proverbs. How many Proverbs are there? Do you remember? There's 31 because you read one every day and the months that you only have 30 days, you get that day off, right? But there's 31. And so 31, what is the significance of chapter 31? It is where it talks about a, a virtuous woman. And so a lot of people believe that when you get to the end of Proverbs and it talks about the virtuous woman, that the reason the Jews put Ruth next is because here's an illustration of a virtuous woman. And so as we get to the end of this, we've seen Ruth demonstrate this great virtue. And now we see Boaz demonstrating this great virtue as well. Now, when we come to this point of the buying and the selling of the land, probably one of the things that we're wondering is why can't Ruth or or why can't Naomi just sell this land and they could just live off of you know, the the money that they make from it. Again, it goes into that whole idea of the land from Deuteronomy has to stay within a clan. So you can't just go out and sell your land to anybody. There is also the aspect of Jubilee. Uh, The year of Jubilee would come every 50 years. Every 50 years, all the land has to go back to its rightful owner. So what they could do is they could lease it out to someone, but every 50 years, because God says it has to stay within this clan, has to stay for these families, everything returns back to the original owner. And so that was God's way of making sure people were provided for and people were not exploited. And so that brings us to verse three. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, again, remember, if you luck up into this and you have this situation where there is this lady who has no children to pass this land down through, and and remember, it doesn't pass through women. Why? Because women could intermarry within other tribes, 
And so therefore that land, if it went to a daughter and she ended up marrying someone else, it works its way out of that tribe. So it has to keep following through the sons. That's why the sons were receiving the inheritance, okay? So she can't just go out there and sell it because of that purpose right there. Now, if you lucked up and, 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 and you know, from a totally human perspective, lucked up, and, and you ran across one of these, these um, widows who now has no one to pass this down to, then you'd be like rubbing your hands together and you're thinking, yes, I get all of this land. All I have to do is redeem it. What does it mean to redeem it? Well, number one, you have to show that you're in line to redeem it. But number two, again, remember, before they left and went to Moab, they probably sold it or rented it out. So it has to be purchased. In other words, whoever bought it, he has to sell it back to them. So you do have to redeem the land. There is a physical cost to it. But this gives you more that you can now leave to your children, right? Because you're the one redeeming it, and now you're passing it down to your children because it's still staying within your tribe, all right? So this is why when he brings it up, this guy's like, yes. And I think the reason that Boaz brings this up without telling the whole story is he's showing the character of this man. He said, oh, yeah, redeem it. Yeah, absolutely, I'll redeem it. I will take it. And look where he goes next. Verse 5, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth. What does it say? The Moabite. Again, the author keeps reminding us she's a Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, hmm, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair, what does it say? My own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. Now, here's what's interesting. When it's just the land, absolutely I can redeem it. Why? Because that's more I'll get to leave to my kids. But then you throw in the caveat of, oh, by the way, there is Ruth, the Moabite, and you receive her as well to perpetuate the inheritance in the line of Malon. That makes it a lot more difficult because that means this land that I'm getting, I'm not actually getting it. Yeah, I can work it for a little while, but it's going to go back to that side. And whatever that family becomes, it becomes an extension of them. Now, again, this is still the same tribe. This is still the same clan. But yet this guy is so focused on his own life and his own kids that to bring in this responsibility would hinder what he could actually pass down to his children. Because again, you got to think about, he's got to spend money to take care of this land. He has to redeem this land. He loses all of that because it goes to her and her children, not to his, right? And so... When you think about the perspective of the two individuals, we know who Boaz is. This other guy, we have no idea. Boaz is interested in the inheritance and the redemption of the land to perpetuate the family of the dead. The other man is only interested in his own family. So when we put all of this together, I think there's a picture here. In the long run, this guy sees this is going to be a great sacrifice because I'm not going to be able to pass it down to my own children, which reminds us of what happens way back in Genesis chapter 38. Do you remember the lady by the name of Tamar? Tamar found herself in the same situation, and Tamar could not get anyone to do a righteous act of following the law of Moses to redeem her. And so she goes through great means, okay, 
and we'll just leave it at that, to become what God rightfully intended for her to be, which is a mother. And she ends up tricking Judah, and Judah becomes the father of her son. Okay. Now, when we begin to think about that picture, what happened in there was Judah had other sons, but every time that Tamar was given to one of them, they would die. And so it came down to this one son who absolutely had no interest in being the father of those children. And his name was Onan, okay? Now, when we pull these two stories together, the redeemer in Ruth seems to have very similar concerns to Onan because Onan did not want to have to share anything with the children of Tamar. Now, in verse 6 here, he states, this redeemer states that it would impair his own inheritance. Now, listen to how one commentator puts this. In the mind of this man, marriage to Ruth which perpetuates the name of the deceased upon his estate, somehow threatens the Redeemer's own inheritance. He might expend his own capital on an estate that will eventually be inherited by a child belonging to someone else. However, whenever we look at these stories a little more closely, these anxieties that all these would-be Redeemers have actually never come to fruition. What I mean is this. When Tamar's sons are referred to, guess who they're always referred to as? The sons of Judah. They're never referred to as the first husband that she had. And what's interesting here is whenever we see the mention of Ruth's kids, the name of the father, they never say Malon. They always say Boaz. And so there's this idea that if I step out there, then somehow my name is not going to be as popular as everyone else's because I'm going to have to take care of all these people and I'll get no credit for it whatsoever. But in actuality, every time we see someone do something righteous, they do end up getting credit for it. One theologian points out the perspective this way. It is the men who refuse to perform Leverite marriage who must endure the fate to which they would have condemned others childlessness or the loss of name in Israel. You see that? You see, when Onan is mentioned in Genesis 38 later on, you know what it tells us about him? He never had any children. And what does it tell us in this story right here? This man who is so worried about his inheritance, we have no idea what his name is. And it's left that way. But this man who is willing to be righteous, who is willing to put the needs of others above his own, we tell his story over and over and over. And there are books in the library and there are books at Lifeway that talk about finding your Boaz. I mean, you talk about someone who stepped out there and took a chance, but yet his name has been perpetuated not only in Israel, but throughout the world as being an honorable man who did the right thing. You see, sometimes when we sacrifice, there's this greater return than we could ever experience because we are doing things the way God has called us to. Look at verse 7. 
Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So the removal of the shoe basically means giving up a legal right, okay? There's not a whole lot more to say about it other than that. But to take the shoe off, we see it in other places. Deuteronomy 25, there's a story of a woman who is, again, it was a Leverite marriage. And this guy was unwilling to fulfill his duties. And so she takes the sandal from him. And so it seems to be this giving up of a right. And so it's symbolic in nature. Now let's look at these last couple of verses here. And Boaz has redeemed Ruth and the witnesses and the elders have all affirmed this. And now what we see is that the elders give a blessing to Boaz and Ruth to whom he's now betrothed. Look at verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act, what's the word? Worthily and Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez whom who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So a part of this blessing, they pray that the house of Boaz would be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now this mention here of the story of Tamar and Judah tells us that Genesis 38 has been in the mind of this author the entire time he's been writing this. This has been the backdrop of his writing. So the comparison of Ruth and Tamar signifies this commonality between the Leverite nature of both of these unions. Perez had become the ancestors of of many clans, including the clan of Boaz and presumably the clan of Elimelech. Now the elders pray that the name of Boaz will live on through the widow youth, uh, or Ruth, okay? And live on it does, right? I mean, that's what we see. And we're going to get to that in a moment. Well, actually, in a couple of weeks when we finish out Ruth, we're going to look at the next section. And then the last section, we're going to look at that genealogy. And that genealogy is going to springboard us into the Advent season, almost like we planned it that way. So is the idea of inheritance foreign in our culture today? Well, maybe it's getting there at least. I mean, I understand that there are aspects to this story that are really hard for us to comprehend from our cultural perspective because the whole idea of inheritance and leaving something for the next generation is beginning to wane 
in our society. The idea of receiving an inheritance is slowly beginning to become a foreign concept to people today because in the ancient Near East, inheritance was everything. But today, we have the idea of forging our own paths to take care of ourselves. Whereas in that day and time, whatever your dad did, that's what you did because you didn't have an opportunity to go to college and learn something different. Today, you can be like, well, I don't have to do what my dad did. I can do something completely different and I can forge my own way. Now think about this. According to one study, almost 70% of young people think that there is some form of inheritance waiting for them when their parents die. But many of them are gonna be in for a very unpleasant reality because the same research shows that only 40% of parents today actually plan to leave anything at all, no matter how small, to their children. Almost 50% of baby boomers don't even have a will. 50% do not have a will, let alone any money to actually pass on to the next generation. 35% of baby boomers plan on spending any money that they have left on themselves and not passing it on. 25% of baby boomers are actually expecting their children to help fund their retirement which is actually a complete reversal from the way things used to be. Which leads me to another application of this. Our sinful nature leads to selfishness, does it not? We look out for ourselves first, and if there's any time or money left over, then we will look out for the needs of others. We go into Walmart, the guy's ringing the bell, feel a little bit guilty. We break that 20, and there's a little bit of change okay, that's yours. But rarely do we think about, you know what, there's someone who's in greater need. And I'm not telling you every time you pass by one of those barrels to give it, because who knows what happens to that money. I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, that, that's what you need to do to relieve the guilt that you have, okay? I'm just using this as an illustration. But a lot of times I think you, you understand that whatever it may be, whether it's that red kettle or whether it's somebody knocking on the door who's raising money for such and such, or somebody comes up and asks you to sponsor a hole in some golf tournament for missionaries, whatever it may be, There's that feeling sometimes of, uh, well, let me take care of this, this, and this, and whatever I have left over, then I might be able to give to that. See, selfishness leads us to worry about our own name and the way our name is viewed within the community. Research has shown that generally speaking, people are only willing to sacrifice something or perform a good deed out of compassionate concern when there is no threat to receiving some level of distress. In other words, it doesn't cramp my style. When people experience distress or cramping of the style in response to someone else's suffering, they are more than likely just not going to help that person. And this is the same way most people approach the idea of sacrifice. We rarely think about what might be produced. All we think about is how it's gonna inconvenience us right now. We don't think about what God could do with this or how it could benefit someone or how the story could end up. All we think about is right now, that's gonna inconvenience me. And we are like the unnamed redeemer in this story. We can't ever forget that the gospel tells us that we should sacrifice out of response for the fact that Christ modeled a life of sacrifice for us. Just as Christ viewed our needs and well-being higher than his own, so also should we making nothing of ourselves like he didn't, taking on the form of a servant like he did, humbling ourselves like he did, even to the point of death on the cross. 
This is the example that Christ set for us. And it should be the example that we follow. Because Christ sacrificed for us, because he redeemed us, because he was so generous to us, because he was able to overcome suffering and despair for us, he's now calling us to live a sacrificial life to reflect that grace that has been extended to us by Christ. Don't ever forget as we enter into what could easily be the most selfish time of the year, a time of the year where we celebrate sacrificial giving of God to us, and yet at the same time we're tempted to think of ourselves and our own families greater than the people around us. I remember Morris Hill in the early days, we had a strong connection with the Metro Jail. Do you remember that we had those opportunities each year and you could get a little name and it was the child of someone who was in prison? And what they would do is you were considered an angel for that child and you would go and buy the present. So the dad who is in jail would say, this is something that this person loves. You would go and buy that and then they would give you the address of where that child lived. And oftentimes, if not all of the time, it was in a very dangerous area of the city. But nevertheless, people of Mars Hill would go and buy those things they would venture into those dangerous areas and they would walk up and knock on this door and say, is whoever it may be here? And of course, the child would come to the door and the person didn't say, here, I wanted you to have this. The person said, your daddy wanted to make sure that you had this. Wow, what a picture of sacrifice. It's not about my name, it's about someone else, but yet God uses those kinds of moments to grow in us a character that can't be grown in any other way. It's that, that time when we take a chance, when we step out there, when we do something that is not at all burdened upon us to do, but yet we take a chance and we step across that line that we see these incredible things happen. Let's make sure to remember the gospel in this, especially over the next month. You see, the story of Ruth and the sacrifice made by Boaz points us to an even greater redeemer and an even greater sacrifice and an even greater Boaz in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Christ made the ultimate sacrifice through his death. At the time, it seemed absolutely pointless. It even seemed pointless to the disciples. They didn't see what there was to gain from this. But it is actually they who remember and record those events and write down all the things he did when they realize that significance, that his death was the catalyst that opened up all of heaven to humanity. And so they write about taking care of the widows and the orphans and the marginalized and the poor. Why? Because that's what Christ did for us. And we have to model that for others. You see, in Christ, we can give up the good things that we want for ourselves for the sake of others because we know we will receive even greater things in the presence of God. Do you understand, again, the definition of sacrifice? Giving up something because we think that what's going to come is going to be of a greater value than whatever it is that we're giving up. That's the idea of sacrifice. Can we follow the model that Christ set out for us, that Boaz set out for us. Not follow the culture, but follow what scripture calls us to. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the demonstration of great generosity and honorable character and a worthy woman that we find in this story. 
But Lord, if we just read it as a historical document and we don't really dig into it and ask ourselves, who am I in this story? What do I need to change? What do I need to allow God to do in me and through me? Lord, then all of this is in vain. And so God, I just pray that the power of your word would transform your people. I pray that those who don't know you as their Savior and Lord today, that they would find transformation within this story and a drawing from your Holy Spirit into your family through the powerful act of salvation and redemption. God, I pray that we would lift our eyes up and see the bigger story that's happening all around us and the opportunities to live out the gospel in a worthy way. God, forgive us where we fall short of that, but spur us on to follow the model that you set for us in whatever ways you call us to do that. We ask this in the powerful and sovereign name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.